Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And I'm Gordon Leppard, a financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. Great day, guys. Yeah, good yeah, Saturday. It is good a great day, Saturday. Yeah. Isn't that another great football Saturday? Um, yeah, yeah we'll, big we'll, games today. There are. We'll jump right in there. Let me, let me do this, though. And okay. say that, hey, we're excited for everybody listening to us today on our weekly radio show. Like every Saturday, we're right here from 9 to 10 a.m. We're also streaming, right? Yeah, you can get our website, moneymd.net, and uh, we have a link in the top right-hand corner. Also have a link to our podcast, so if you're not able to, to listen to a certain Saturday, you can go back and check us out. And email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or link to us there on our website, moneymd.net. We'd love to hear from you and love to have your questions. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's a kind of another fun Saturday, you know? I mean, hey. Carolina didn't lose last week. Could so. be a scary Saturday, it's too, though. Great, you know? great, Could be. Great, great yeah. uh, weekend. Trick or treat. A little Halloween action. Oh, a little right. Halloween action. What a great football season, though. I mean, you know, <laughs> one of the local teams now has just moved up to. Coastal Carolina, I think, is number one. Five, number right? three in the what, country. What, in the FB- FBS? Yeah, Coastal Carolina is having a fantastic year. They're undefeated. <laughs> it won't oh, be. and Clemson's doing okay also. <laughs> Pretty decent. Clemson's yeah. holding their own. Squeak you know, by Miami. We can just squeak by Miami. You know, everybody was thinking that was going to be a close game. Man, and, uh, that was a beatdown. Ouch. Ouch. Very impressive. It was like a Category 5 rolling in <laughs> South, was South Florida. You know? The Hurricanes got, like yeah. Hurricane Andrew. Some definite hurricane <laughs> action there. Well, let's hope they repeat that up at uh, up at uh, North Carolina State. Yeah. You know, NC State. That's going to be. Could be a little bit of a test, but you, I don't know. You never can tell. You wouldn't think. If they show up like they did in Miami, of course, it won't be a problem. Well, and Georgia's at Florida. Yeah. Where's Carolina? Uh, Texas A&M. Mm. So Ooh, tough. that could be a tough game. Yeah. You never can tell. Yeah. College Station. That's right. So we keep our fingers crossed for all three teams. And Georgia Tech plays – who do they play? I don't know, but what a great win last week. Oh, you know, yeah, they beat Florida State. Took down Florida State. Florida yeah. State. Uh, you know, us Clemson fans, we are happy about yeah, that. I bet you are. Because Florida State, they've been our nemesis for quite a while here. Yeah, and Georgia Tech has Virginia. Virginia, okay. Yeah. There right. you go. All right. Well, another great football Saturday, but also a great Saturday for more – prescriptions for your financial health and we're here with them um you know in fact uh guys one of the first things we're going to start off talking about is the the five insurance myths and how they can cost you big Mm -hmm. you know people don't really these are homeowners insurance myths and people don't really understand homeowners insurance i've found you know in my 20 years in this business i mean people just think okay it covers whatever happens to your house 
Well, there's a lot more to it than that. You know, there's the liability part. There's up to 100000 of liability. There's, there's a lot of details, and there's a lot of things that it doesn't cover, and these are the myths that people have. So we're going to dig into those. You really need to understand those because those could be a disaster if sure. you have a disaster. Yeah, it could cost you a lot of money. Sure could. And we're going to follow up with an article about uh, do-it-yourself investing. And, um, you know, guys, there's a lot of different ways to invest out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of choices, and some of them have um, some, some risk. And uh, there are folks that do it on their own, uh, investing-wise, and some of them can be successful. But we're going to kind of show you some of the pitfalls that we see and kind of highlight some of those risks associated with that. That's right. And uh, last week, you know, we talked about how the Affordable Care Act is going to affect premiums uh, across the board, um, you know, with health care. And this week we're going to take a look at Social Security benefits and whether or not they're going to be going up. And, More and good Medi- news. And Medicare, right? Yeah. Right. And, and Medicare, how that's going to affect uh, the overall situation. So. Yeah, that'll be interesting because, you know, everybody, there's a lot of people out there depending on Social Security. And question is, are you going to get a raise next year? Um, we'll answer that. Ouch. Yes. Okay. So, all right. We're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. This comes from the Startup Genome Project and um, kind of a scary stat here on Halloween. But 90% of startup businesses launched in the U.S. fail for a a variety of reasons, um, primarily due to self-destruction. I mean, not having... You know some certain things in place, and we were talking about this a little earlier. Uh, a lot of a lot of times, it's not having emergency funds and taking on too much debt, and sometimes not having the right planning associated with it. But ninety percent fail—that's a big number. Yeah, it's a huge percentage. You know, and I've always heard that it's because they're undercapitalized, mm-hmm. a big portion of them. What that means is that means when they start the business, they don't have enough money on hand to really do it right. You know, they can't buy the right equipment. They have to rent a lot of things and and buy things, take out. They they buy a lot of things and and take on a lot of debt. And then they don't have enough money to keep the business running for a year, which you have to, because no business really starts making money typically until after a year or two. So, you know. Sometimes three. You've got to have the right amount of money to start a business. Another big thing that I've heard is accounting. And Mm -hmm. we've seen this personally with people we counsel. They have small businesses. They don't keep good track of their expenses and their income. They commingle their funds. It turns into a huge mess. They don't know where to cut expenses, where to apply capital, and, you know, before you know it, they're in big trouble. I've heard Dave Ramsey talk about this a little bit, and, um, you know, his advice is, is kind of along the lines of what we're talking about here. And instead of getting into debt, go rent a building versus building it. So Certainly. going to it really slow. He, he talked about his career when he did the radio show when he started it. Right. Instead of kind of going out and buying all this equipment and, you know, and so forth, he would he went and bought used equipment and had rentals um, with everything. And so if it failed, it wouldn't have, you know, caused him to go bankrupt. So um, exactly. just go into it conservatively. Yeah, be smart about the way you start a business. but uh, And get some good counseling, too. That's another thing. Sure. You know, you don't want to do it all on your own. You want to get some advice. So great financial fact of the week. Okay, and that leads up to our first topic here, and that is the five home insurance myths and how they could cost you big. Um, yeah, this is based on an article out of BottomLinePersonal.com. Uh, And, uh, you know, the director for insurance for the uh, Consumer Federation of America is the guy that that authored this. And, you know, there's some great tips here because, I mean, guys, I mean, very few homeowners fully understand their homeowner's policy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, maybe they got it 10 years ago and maybe they read it one time, but probably not even then. You know, I mean, most policies are written in a lot of legalese. Many policyholders don't even try to wade through that. 
Um, and as a result, many people are mistaken about their rights and, and what's covered when dealing with insurers. And they're unaware of the gaps in coverage that some of these policies have, which can cause financial ruin. So, I mean, this problem is getting worse because insurers have made some major changes to policies over the last few years. And those changes have kind of escaped the notice of most customers. So we're going to talk about five of the most common and potentially costly insurance myths. So here yeah. we are with number one. Myth number one is if my home is destroyed, my insurance will pay what it costs to rebuild it. Sounds kind of straightforward, right? You would think. Yeah. But, uh, you know, prior to Hurricane Andrew, which is back in uh, 1992, uh, off the coast of Florida, most policies provided guaranteed replacement costs. So whatever it costs to build back, they would pay it. But, you know, that's changed. And this guarantee is no longer uh, offered in the vast majority of policies. And these days, most policies cover up to a dollar figure that's specifically listed inside the you know the policy. Some places will give you a 20% above that. But, you know, there's some factors which we're going to talk about that could take the cost even above that. So, you know, that's that's not the case anymore. You may need to make sure you have certain coverages in order to rebuild. Yeah, you got to be aware of what it actually covers. And, you know, I mean, even homeowners who are aware of the change, um, they tend to assume that they're safe as long as the coverage amount listed on the policy is kind of in line with the typical cost of rebuilding a home like theirs. Unfortunately, because of the phenomenon called, called damage surge, our demand surge, um, you know, that might not be sufficient. So this is one of those phenomenons where if you have a major disaster, a whole bunch of homes in your area are hurt or damaged. And so what happens is the cost of rebuilding skyrockets, you know, sometimes up by more than 50%. So the value listed on your policy becomes insufficient. You know, like in our area, we had hell damage here maybe maybe um, 10 years ago. A lot of homes had hell damage. Well, to get a roofer to come in and repair your house or to replace your, your roof, you know, that cost went up dramatically because demand had gone up. So you may not have been had adequate coverage. Um, you know, and what the insurer would pay to get it replaced. Um, also, insurers have been eliminating the building code coverage from policies. When a home is is more than 50% destroyed, it has to be rebuilt to the current building codes. Well, not the codes that were in effect whenever the home was originally constructed. And what that means is without the code coverage, a policy will not pay any added cost to upgrade to the stricter building codes. So, you know, the question is, what do you do about that? Well, first, you need to ask your insurer if it offers demand surge rider, um, especially if your home's in an area where hurricanes are common or wildfires, for example, um, you know, or floods. And, and then you need to consider, you know, how old your home is and what it would cost to rebuild a home similar to yours today in your area up to the current building codes. You might go down to the town office also and the, the planning office and ask, you know, whether the building codes have changed dramatically since your home was built. Um, but either way, you want to ask your insurance agent for a rider, um, you know, and talk about, have that discussion with your insurance agent. So anyway, we'll continue the discussion when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leopard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the five home insurance myths and how they could cost you big. Um, yeah, guys, I mean, this is a real important area because this is something people don't pay much attention to. You know, you get your homeowner's insurance policy, you have it for 10 years, you assume it's going to cover whatever happens, and you even forget what the deductible is. And, you know, what happens is when you have a major disaster, you find out, oh, the policy's changed. It's no longer replacement cost. It's, you know, the depreciated cost of your contents. So that's very common. Um but there are a lot of things in here that, you know, you, you assume it's going to pay whatever it costs to rebuild your house. Now maybe the amount is insufficient efficient to really replace your house. Um, that's a big thing because, you know, houses go up and maybe you add it to your house and you never increase the limits on your policy. Um, so you got to pay attention to that, you know. So what will it cost to rebuild it? Um, your insurance isn't going to pay that most likely. They've changed that, so now it's only going to pay a limit, you know, that you have listed in your policy most likely. Um, so that was myth number one. So that leads us up here to myth number two. That's right. Myth number two is, you know, homeowners must hire a contractor willing to do repairs for the amount the insurer, the insurance company, says it will cover. Now, you know what happens is they send out an adjuster, they kind of put together their numbers and their figures, and they say, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. You know, But uh, the contractor that you want to use may have a little bit higher cost and you know, sure. estimate and quote uh, for what they say it's going to cost. So you know, some people, that they, they might try to take the, the insurance company to court and you know, hire a lawyer and, and go through that process. But that, that's uncertain, for one. You're not guaranteed you're going to win. For and sure. it can be a very, very expensive process. So the money that you might save would be offset by the, you know, the expenses that you incurred with your legal fees. So, you know, you can, you can ask the insurance company or, you know, give them new figures. Hey, this is actually what it's going to cost. And, and you never know unless you ask. You've got to put it out there, you know. So you got to check back with them. Exactly. And that's what you have to do. I mean, you have to go back to the insurance company. I mean, suing them, you know, taking them to court would take forever. You know, I mean, your house would be rotted by the time you well, got through court. So you can't you can't do that. I mean, it's it's even larger than the David versus Goliath. It is. Type you, scenario, you know. You don't want to have to fight your insurance company in court. I mean, so, yeah, the right thing to do is, you know, contact your insurance claims department explain that your contractor is quoting a higher figure, ask them to, to cover this amount. If they refuse to do that, you know, ask to speak to a claims manager and, you know, repeat your request. If the answer is still no, I mean, call your contractor and see if he or she will be willing to contact your insurer on your behalf. I mean, oftentimes contractors have experience in dealing with insurance companies and they can speak their language and, you know, they have a lot better shot probably at getting getting it covered so that's a good point Stephen. a lot of them have good rapport the good ones have good rapport with those adjusters exactly yeah you know meanwhile i mean keep careful notes you know whenever you speak to the insurers adjuster other insurance company employees you know uh, your contractor anyone involved you know the more that you can give them specifics about you know who you've talked to and and what what's been said and, and what the contractor says you know, the better chance you're going to have of uh, pre- pre- presenting them with the facts 
you know, taking the emotion out of it and getting them to reconsider. I mean, insurance companies, I think, oftentimes try to lowball, you know, I mean, it's their job. The adjuster's job is to, mm-hmm. you know, somewhat is to keep the cost down. Keep They're on the insurance end. company's side. Yeah. <laughs> right, you know? right. So don't take the first offer they give you. You right. know, you could push back on that and often get a lot more money. Yeah, number three here on the list is um, homeowner's insurance protects against losses from most types of disasters except for floods and earthquakes, which is true. Um, you know, obviously, homeowners who live near, in or near flood zones or earthquake-prone areas, they're generally aware they're not uh, financially protected against these type of disasters, unless, of course, you have additional insurance. Um, what they may not be aware of is, um, you know, your policy doesn't cover things like, well, nuclear explosions. <laughs> That's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, War. Uh, most people know about that. But there's some other ones that are more mundane that you see about in the news. Mudslides, landslides, sinkholes, um, riots which unfortunately have have happened more recently. So, you know, I would say sitting down with your agent, making sure you understand what is covered and what's not covered, because it's not, in some cases, you know, clear. Yeah, the the nuclear one really concerns me. Yeah. (laughs) You never know nowadays, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I know. uh, But, yeah, I mean, those folks in Ferguson, Missouri, for instance, I guess they didn't have their stores, you know. If they had their stores looted, they probably didn't have get covered. I don't know. Yeah. so, you know, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, many insurers, you know, offer sinkhole, landslide, mudslide. They offer riders. So mm-hmm. you just need to talk to your agent, figure out what kind of area you're in. If you need any special riders to make sure you're covered, that's the moral of that story. All right, the next myth here is my homeowner's insurance will pay the bills if someone is injured on my property. You know, well, a lot of people know that it, there's a $100,000 liability coverage typically that's attached to a homeowner's policy. But, you know, there's some big gaps in that liability component as well. I mean, your policy does not cover injuries to your to members of your household, for example. Um, they generally don't cover injuries to people who visit your property for business purposes. So if you're running a, a, some kind of business out of your home, probably not covered. Um, also, you know, policies increasingly exclude injuries to tramp for trampolines, tree houses, zip lines. You know, so, yeah, I had one of those one time. It had somebody hurt, actually. On so, a trampoline? Uh, oh, the zip line. Oh, yeah. But uh, fortunately, they didn't come back to me. I mean, their insurance covered it. But, you know, so, I mean, there are just some potential hazards back there. You know, you have swimming pools, hot tubs, climbing structures. Generally, those are covered. But, you know, if you disclose them to the insurance company, but you have to pay a higher premium from that. So you just need to check and see, you know, what you what you are covered for? That's right, and and here's what you do if you do have a home business. You know, go and purchase a commercial liability coverage, or or add a home business rider to your existing homeowner's policy. Uh, this is particularly important for clients. Uh, you know, for people if they have clients, employees, or the delivery people that are coming on their premises. You know, for business purposes. Because, you know, things right. could happen, and that's leaving them exposed. So by adding a rider, you know, to an existing homeowner policy, uh, it's usually less expensive, you know, of an option to, to do that than picking up a, an additional rider. But, you know, either way, make sure you have that coverage. Uh, and it, it's much better to have a little bit of insurance there than to have none at all. Exactly. If you rent out your property, you might want to do it through a service like like Airbnb, um, you know, ZBIZ is one of them, Peer Marketplace, you know, where you can get you can get 
insurance specifically for rental properties because you know airbnb i think provides that protection if you rent it through them mm-hmm. um for rentings because your homeowners and policy probably didn't cover that all right the last myth here is since i never bothered to make a record of my possessions now that i have a fire there's no way to get myself compensated for all the things i lost well, that certainly is not true. I mean, you can still get compensated, you know, but it is certainly wise to have, like, pictures, you know, go around your house, take photographs of everything in your house. I mean, nowadays with your with smartphones, it takes no time. You know, walk around your house right now, take a picture of every single room from several angles, 15 minutes, you're done. you got a record of everything in your – all the major things in your house. That's what you need to do. But you can still get it covered if you can remember everything. Just, you know, get pictures from relatives, um, get pictures from, you know, Christmas and all the times when you do take pictures in your house if you had that that disaster. And, uh, you know, you can still get covered, but it's just a lot harder. So just go around your house right now and just take pictures. That's that's kind of the moral of the story there. Okay, um, good topic, but that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question um, kind of revolves around Dave Ramsey a little bit. He talks a lot on the radio about historical returns. Twelve um, percent is the number that he, he uses. So the question is, I'm an aggressive investor, and from a planning standpoint, should I use twelve percent for my rate of return? Um, that's a little high. I mean, obviously, historically, when you go back decades, you can make a case that twelve percent that is you know, a number that has been achieved historically, but looking at it going forward, it would be um, very challenging. Yes, it would not be, in our opinion, um, wise to use 12%. Certainly um, not. You yeah. know, maybe 7 8%. Be conservative. Um, if you use 12%, most scenarios look really good. If you pull it back to 7 or 8%, then it, it gets it back into more of a, a situation that you have to maybe save a little bit more or, you know, do some other things in order to hit that goal. So, yeah, 12% is a little high. Even though it's been historically that. I mean, Dave has a good point, and I understand where he's coming from, but planning-wise. Yeah, it depends on what time period you're looking at. And if you look at the last 30 years, you, you might get 12 or, you know, a 30-year period from the 70s to the 90s or something. But, yeah, I mean, time period is very important, and you don't know if you're going to go through 10 years where you only make 7 or 5 mm-hmm. in the market. You don't know what the market's going to give you between now and retirement. So be conservative is kind of the moral of the story. And, yeah, 12 would not be yeah that's literally he catches rate. a lot of heat over that I, I hear him talk about it a lot and yeah you know, he's looking back at, at historical numbers and you know no one try we don't try to predict the future um but planning standpoint i think you ought to be a little bit more conservative there you go yeah all right good well that leads up to our break here but if you have questions you can email us at info at moneymd.net or you can give us a call during regular business hours richard young associates at 706-739-0725 you're listening to money md we'll be right back after these messages in gina news stay with us Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor with us at Richard Young Associates. And we're going to lead off our uh, next segment here with a new topic, and that is why do-it-yourself investment management 
could be a little bit of a risk. Could be. Right? Could be. There's some people that can do it. No, definitely. I mean, there are some guys that, you know, have the right fortitude. Yeah, and ladies. It, I mean, there's some people that are wired and cut out to do it, but many people are not. It takes discipline. I think that's the biggest thing I see is discipline. But we'll get into this, and yeah, we'll and, talk about it. And a little bit of knowledge. Knowledge we'll, helps, but <clears throat> yeah, we'll share I mean, that a little bit. The ability to take your hand off the wheel is really and important. Breathe. Off the button. Yeah, That's right. Off the button. That's right. Yeah. So this this article comes from uh, Marketing Pro. It's a service that we subscribe to. Um, has some some good content, and uh, this is a good good uh, topic here. And you know, if you if you ever have the inkling to manage your investments on your own, um, you know, you may want to reconsider and think and think about it. Do it yourself. Investment management is generally a bad idea for the retail investor for um, uh, quite a few reasons. I mean, there's a lot of things out there we're going to talk about. One of them is getting caught up in the moment. I mean, when you're watching your investments day to day, you can lose a sense of historical perspective. I think that's so important. And that's one thing is the knowledge piece I was just talking about is the history a little bit, understanding the history of the markets. And uh, 2011 begins to seem like ancient history, let alone 2008. And, you know, this is especially true in longstanding bull markets in which investors are sometimes lulled into assuming that the indexes will move in only one direction. Uh, and that goes the other way as well. In 2008, people thought it could only go down. So, um, you know, getting caught up in the moment can be uh, a risk. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems people have is is they don't have a good knowledge of history, and they don't have a good memory of history. You know, they don't study history very well, you mm-hmm. know, when it comes to markets. And so, you know, I mean, particularly for a young person, for example, I mean, think of about somebody that's under the age of 30. You know, they've never even seen the Fed raise interest rates. <laughs> you know, and they don't even know what that looks like. They're about to. And they're about to. They don't know, you know, they don't remember 9-11. They don't remember that bear market. They don't remember the 90s when the markets took off mm-hmm. and, you know, bubbles were created. There's so many things that you really have to have a good understanding of history. And people don't study the Great Depression. You know, they thought last time the market went down in 2008, it wasn't going to recover. And you were hearing people out there saying, oh, it'll be 10 or 20 years before the market recovers. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's not history, right? We talked about that. Even in the Great Depression, if you were diversified, it recovered in four and a half years. But you had to be diversified. That's right. Right. And, and you had to stay invested. And you have to stay invested. That's right. You know, so there's so many little nuances that are based on history, and that short-sightedness, I think, is a real big problem for individual investors. Yeah, we just went through a bull market uh, and had a four-year um, time frame that there was no correction, which is when the markets are down 10%. Um, in fact, the recent correction disrupted what was shaping up to be one of the most calm years in history for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So. You know, again, the historical perspective, I think, and what we understand and able to communicate is a big, big, big deal that most retail investors don't have. And um, another one here is listening too closely to talking heads. I mean, guys, you know, the noise of Wall Street is never ending. And, uh, you know, you can breed a short-sightedness that may lead you to focus on the micro versus the macro. As an example, I mean, the hot issue affecting a particular sector today may pale in comparison to the developments affecting it across the next 10 years uh, or the past 10 years. So, you know, making decisions on what you're hearing on CNBC, wrong answer. <laughs> That's not the right way to go about doing it. That and, and headlines can <clears throat> literally change from morning to afternoon. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have literally seen, seen that. That's before. right. Oh, yeah. You know, so that, that's a great point there, John. Um, next one, looking only to make money in the market. You know, Wall Street representatives, they – it only uh, – 
represents only an avenue for potential building your your retirement savings and your wealth. You know, when you're caught up in the excitement of a of a rally, that that truth may be obscured. You know, you kind of get caught up in the moment. Uh, you can build savings by spending less. You can receive free money from an employer willing to match your retirement plan, you know, such as your 401k or some other type plan, you know, to some degree. Um, you can grow a hobby into a business or switch jobs or careers. You know, you're, you're like Dave also mentions quite often, you know, your single best wealth building tool mm-hmm. is your income. Right. And your personal capital there. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Another one here on the list is do it, do it yourself. Investors sometimes don't save enough. I mean, the art of investing equals making money in the markets um, for most, uh, you know, do it yourself investors. But uh, you also got to look at the savings piece of it. Subscribing to that mentality may dissuade you from saving more than you should. So, you know, Dave recommends 15%, Dave Ramsey, and that's what we do as well. And it's right. a hard number to hit. But you got to start somewhere, and so savings is a key piece that you know, a lot of retail investors miss. Another one is paying too little attention to taxes. I mean, if you have a ten percent return, you know that becomes a little bit more bitter if you have three percent taken out for federal and state. So, you know, this routinely occurs. Just just as many uh, do-it-yourself investors tend to play the market in one direction, they also have the tendency to skimp on playing defense. So, tax management is an important factor in wealth retention. So, you know, we, we talk about funds and, and uh, how they operate, tax-managed funds, Roth IRAs. There's some things that you need to think about when you start looking at wealth building. Yeah, tax deferral is definitely worth a lot mm-hmm. when it comes to your long-term return. Um, another one here is, you know, failing to pay attention to your emergency fund. You know, on, on, on average, the unemployed person in the job market, they stay unemployed for more than six months. You know, I mean, in fact, according to the Federal Reserve Bank, the the mean duration for unemployment is 28.4 weeks. Um, So, uh, you know, you have to just consider the fact that you got to have a a, a big emergency fund. You can't go take that money, stick it in the stock market and, you know, watch it go down, you know, 20 percent when you might need it the most. So you got to pay attention to having the proper amount of an emergency fund before you go invest in the stock market. And that's what sometimes do-it-yourself investors, they don't really get the big picture of how you're supposed to allocate your finances. And the, the emergency fund's a big part of that. Yeah, so some some cases more than six months is required. Some people may need less than that. But, um, yeah, something emergency funds are critical. We talk about that quite a bit as well. Another one here on the list is, is uh, retail investors a lot of times overreact to a bad year. I mean, guys, you look back at history, and there have been negative years. And going forward, there will be negative years as well. So... Uh, it's a part of investing and trying to time um, those ups and downs is impossible. I mean, no one can do it, period. So, you know, sometimes stocks are not going to rise 10% annually. It's going to be, a, you know, all over the, the map. And fortunately, you have more than one year in which to plan for retirement and your goals. So, you know, your long run retirement savings and investing approach. Uh, aided by compounding matters more than what the market does during a particular 12 months. So dramatically altering your investment strategy and reaction to present conditions, it can backfire, can really mess you up. So, you know, that's again, we're focusing on a plan and kind of tuning out the noise is important. That here's another one, you know, making the parallels between the economy and the market. You know, those two aren't always one in the same. You know, in fact, uh, there have been periods, you know, think back to um, 2006 and 2007 when stocks hit historical peaks, even when key economic indicators flashed recession, recession. 
you know so moreover you know some investments and market sectors can do well or show promise when the economy goes through rough stretches Mm -hmm. so you know they're they're not always working hand in hand parallel right there yeah and the last one here on the list is is focusing more on money than overall quality of life and um, you know managing investments is very complex Um, you know it's not just about the investments it's how everything ties together it takes time it takes knowledge uh, we see a lot of people that want to work with us, um, partly because they're they're tired of doing it themselves, and they want you know someone else, a professional, to take a look at it. So, uh, you know, you can do this um, on your own, but it takes a special person. It's very difficult. It is very complex. Um, you know, and so there are other choices, advisors um, out there to help you. There are brokers and so forth. So, you know, you got to f- find something that's going to make your situation work with your family is what it boils down to yeah and i would say you know a, a couple of the major things for doing yourselfers where they fail is when you obviously have to have the knowledge to mm-hmm. construct a good to well diversified portfolio but the other one is you have to be able to check your emotions you know and, and your emotions lead you if you're if you don't have anybody to bounce those off of and ask questions to it leads you a lot of times to make poor decisions based on emotions and you know you're trying to ultimately try and time the market yeah um so you've got to be careful with that and if you don't have you know the discipline to sit through a correction or a bear market and not sell you know during the middle of that or try to resist the urge to try to time it then you definitely don't want to be doing it yourself yeah and it takes a certain amount of knowledge to to understand that and a certain perspective about history so yeah it's a great great topic um i think a lot of people fall into that trap okay well that leads up to our break here but if you have questions you can email us at info at moneymd.net or you can give us a call during regular business hours 706-739-0725 you're listening to money md we'll be right back after these messages stay with us Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are um, starting off our last segment here with a new topic, but first we're going to do the prescription of the week. Yeah, this prescription has to do with um, uh, fraud uh, and, and people fishing to get information, so real succinctly when someone asks for information via phone or email don't give it to them uh, until you can verify who they are i had a client who um sent me an email and said that they had someone that was asking questions posing as the irs and they wanted information and so we obviously said you know don't give that to them go directly to the irs go to their website go to their phone numbers um, there's places that you can report fraud. We're going to put that on our website. You can check that out with the IRS. But prescription is is don't open up attachments. Don't give information out over the phone, you know, emails. There's so many people. And you think about it, <clears throat> if they do, you know, you know, 2 million, you know, email blasts, there's probably going to be five people that answer them. Right. And that's all they need. Doesn't take many. No, it does A very, very small percentage. But just on, I mean, I made the mistake probably four or five years ago of opening up an attachment from UPS. I remember. Saying they had an issue with the shipment and clicked on it and it messed up my computer. Oh. Um, 
So I don't ever do that. So go back directly to UPS. Go to their website. Use their tools directly um, associated with it. So. Yeah, it's gotten to be so prevalent now with email and the Internet. I mean, there are just so many phishing emails that come out. You know, I get two or three of them a day. Oh, I do too. Attachments that want to, you know, you open the attachment, it's going to probably stick some kind of virus on your computer that um, will send them, you know, will search for your passwords and your information. So you haven't gotten the stuff emailed or um, wired over from England or Africa no, or wherever? No, I've never gotten one of those awards or one of those, no, uh, that's right. you know, big just grants. just some place to send it. I mean, the million all. dollar, I know, that's all they need is your bank account information. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I mean, I even got a letter in the mail just yesterday that um, uh, Experian had been hacked. Mm. And, you know, our son's uh, information was, was you know, taken out from Experian, was downloaded. And so they were giving him a free, you know, year of credit monitoring. But, I mean, they are the credit agency. How they're nice the, of that. Isn't that reassuring? Yeah. Yes. I mean, they're the credit reporting agency, Experian. They're one of the big ones. So, well, you know, it just goes to show you anybody can be hacked. You've got to be ever so vigilant about your information out there. And, um you know, yeah. So there's a number here, right? There's eight 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 three eight two one two two two, or you can go to irs.gov yeah, that to report. That's specifically for the IRS phishing. Phishing um, for yeah. the IRS. And we'll have there that on go. our website. And as well. even be cautious of emails that you get. You know that are from friends that may just have a link only. Oh yeah, you know, right. send them a text or give them a call. Say, hey, you know, did you send me this link? And more times than not, you'll find out that their uh, their email account was probably hacked. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, send so that on a number of occasions. So be careful out there, no doubt. Good, good uh, prescription of the week. Okay, and that leads up to our last topic here, and that is um, Social Security benefits. For 2016, will they go up you have good or news, will right? they not? Well, Steve, you know, you posed a great question at the beginning of the uh, the radio show here that kind of hopefully it kept people hanging around for a little while. <laughs> so w- will they go up or will they go down? Drum well, l- l- let's, let's get into it, you know. Uh, the, Social Admin- the Social Security Administration, they recently made their announcement uh, that everyone was, you know, kind of thinking about already. And thanks to falling energy prices and uh, just the way that everything else is kind of going, the nation's 65 million Social Security uh, recipients will not be getting a cost of living increase in 2016. Nothing. And, you know, this is the first time uh, that that's happened since 2011. Uh, And since the law provides uh, that when benefits don't go up, the maximum wage on which Social Security taxes is, po- is imposed can't rise either. And so that will remain at $118,500. Well, that's the good news for higher income earners. Yeah, but there's also some other things out there. Medicare, there's 30% of Medicare recipients that are going to have uh, a premium increase as much as 50%. That's um, hard to believe. It is. I mean, I'd, I would be interested in what those situations were, but 70% of the people won't have any changes, but... You know, 30% are going to have a big surprise when they get their uh, their first, you know, bill. Yeah, so a third of, of Medicare recipients will pay up to 50% more for their premiums for Part B uh, <clears throat> Medicare. That's, that's hard to believe. Yeah, but the Department of Health and Human Services, they're expected to announce that, you know, here in early November. So it's coming right up um, that, you know, costs could go up that much. 
And it's because of some weird law. Um, it's like a you know hold harmless provision of the you know the law. I mean, we'll get into that here in a minute. But it's uh, it's a weird deal. And um, you know what it means is basically if you're one of those higher income earners and you pay the higher Medicare premiums, all of the increase may fall on your shoulders for the whole hundred percent for the whole for the rest of the folks in the pre- program because wow. there's some law that that prevents the lower mm-hmm. income earners from yeah. seeing an increase yeah. um if their social security didn't also go up so means testing is already happening it's already happening yeah, there you go a, without actually calling it that. that's exactly right you know so but but there's a separate uh law that provides that premiums paid by all medicare uh, recipients combined must cover 25% of the cost of Part B that we're talking about, you know, which pays for, you know, physicians and outpatient services. Now, that leaves the entire increase to be shifted onto the backs of the recipients who aren't protected by the hold harmless provision. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, those folks that are in the high income seniors. And they're defined as as single person making over eighty five thousand, or married couple making over one hundred seventy thousand. Um, they're the ones that don't fall under that hold harmless provision of the law. That's right. So all of the increase falls on their shoulders. So they may see their premiums jump from like one hundred fifty dollars a month for Part B up to two hundred twenty three dollars a month for Part B. Wow. Um, and then if you're in that really wealthy category, making over 214000 so I'm, I'm sure nobody has sympathy for those folks. But nonetheless, still, I mean, their insurance could go, their Part B alone could go from 335 to over $500 per month per person. So a couple now in Part B could be paying as much as $12,000 a year for, for coverage. Man, that's that's unbelievable. That's, that's up from eight thousand, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. So that's what a huge number. That's, that's, a huge that's, that's quite a jump, you know. And additionally, you know, along with the well-off, the the unlucky premium payers also include uh, anyone who didn't have Medicare premiums taken out of his or her Social Security checks in two thousand fifteen. So you know, it, it's touching touching a lot of people here. Yeah. It's affect, affecting a lot of folks. Yeah, and that category includes some federal and other, you know, government retirees who don't get Social Security and some seniors who weren't receiving Social Security in 2015 because they were waiting um, until they, you know, later age to, to start to claiming. Claim. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, one example they have here um, in this article is if your adjusted ghost income is, is in the lower tier, you know, below 85000 um then uh, your 2016 premium could w- would have been $159 a month um, compared to $104 per month by somebody that that started in 2015. So there's a there's kind of a a, a donut hole here, I guess. If mm-hmm. you're starting new, you're not under the provision, and you may see the higher premium, which is 50% higher than somebody. That started last year. So basically, they're telling you Medicare. you're not missing anything. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know you're so, just starting up. So if you're starting, top. you're going to start with a lot higher premium, even though you're in the same category. So it's pretty, pretty weird. Yeah, and you know another irony of the current situation is that premiums will rise, also for the poorest Medicare recipients. You know, so-called dual eligibles. 
who have their premiums paid by state Medicaid programs instead of, uh, you know, instead of taken out of their Social Security benefits. Now that means that states, uh, as well as senior organizations, they're doing a lot of lobbying, you know, for Congress or to Congress to try to, you know, prevent this from happening, you know. But it didn't happen in 2010. Didn't happen in 2011. Uh, they they weren't able to keep those premiums from going up. You know then. Yeah, and you know going back to the cola, the cost of living increase or the, the lack of increase. Um, you know there there's going to be a lot of people that are, are upset about that. I mean they look at a certain um, you know they call it the CPI, um, urban wage earners and clerical workers index that looks at energy and so forth. But, you know, if you look at the elderly, they have a lot of medical costs as well. And, and medical, as you guys see, the premiums are going up. I think um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is going up 7.5% next year. Um, so, I mean, there's medical costs. There's something, there are costs right. that these uh, retirees face. Um, and, you know, there's some, some deficit hawks out there that are looking to, to change the, the way the cost of living is done that will make it even less in the future. So those are the kind of things that are coming down the pike in Social Security and Medicare and so forth. And it's so unfortunate that, you know, so many of these seniors, they provide very heavily on these Social Security benefits. They do. Hey, the silver lining, though, is cost of living inflation didn't go up at all last year. That's the silver lining. So, hey, I mean, what are you worried about? I mean, you know, cost of living's the same. You don't need any more money. Yeah. You're in great uh, shape. They, certainly, gas prices are down. Um, they, they, that's probably that's the, big, that's the big thing that food has prices driven. aren't. Medical's not down, so you know it's a, it's the way they they measure it. It's the way they measure it exactly. So yeah, a little bit of pain in today's report, but um, you know, hang in there. Uh, there's always next year, and maybe inflation will be high, and you'll get a raise. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> All right. Well, this that's been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from nine to ten a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Hey, hey, hey. Ladies and gentlemen. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Peace.